did you know you could be listening to The Gist with no ads and bonus extended interviews? Just go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to learn more and sign up in that order. Thank you. Friday, March 3rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Bloomberg reporting Zoom Video Communications Inc. slumped in early trading Friday after abruptly terminating the employment of President Greg Toom, a former Google executive who had only started in June. The headline was Zoom abruptly fires President Greg Toom, quote, without cause which makes it sound like the company did it for no reason. It's a weird thing to brag about to investors. But no, it's actually an indication that he will be paid his severance. There's not a lawsuit because if they said with cause, it would be a problem. He'd rebut that. There'd be a scandal. Just without cause. We decided to, they said. The big question I had is, when it comes to personnel decisions at Zoom, is it considered cowardly or necessary to fire a person over Zoom? I mean, you can't get that normal, indignant, and they fired me over Zoom if the company is Zoom. If Greg takes issue with the manner of the firing, maybe it in fact shows, you know, you weren't really a good fit for Zoom. It's like when the corrugated box company fires you. What do they give you to take your supplies out in? Maybe the A152 model. Ooh, you know what? Maybe a B32 Browning model. That would be good. Or maybe that would be considered theft of office supplies. Okay. Remember when I said that was the big thought that hit me, firing a guy over Zoom? It actually wasn't. Let me quote to you another section of that report. Toom reported directly to Chief Executive Eric Wan, who started Zoom in 2011 and had to rapidly build up the business during a pandemic-fueled boom. More recently, the company has been cutting jobs to deal with softening demand. Yeah, so here's what I really thought. In June, Greg Toom was hired to run Zoom. <laughs> Did they presume to resume the pandemic? Boom. As layoffs loomed, was Zoom prepared for gloom? Zoom stock has swooned as Toom has met his doom. And yeah, I know, I don't only think as Professor Henry Higgins, I also think as sometimes beloved hip-hop songs of the 80s, 90s, and today. So, I know that just a few months ago, CEO Eric Wan was thinking, all I want to do this June is put that Greg Toom right in charge of Zoom soon. Shake your ass and shake your ass they did. As I assume, they hire a replacement for Toom. At this time, we know not whom. On the show today, the Senate and those tiny underpopulated rural conservative states like Delaware and Rhode Island. But first... Poker Face is a fantastic show on the Peacock Network, told episodically, not serially. Check in, watch Natasha Leone, solve a mystery, check out. Episode 9, the penultimate episode, is penned by the show's showrunners, Lilla and Nora Zuckerman. And these two join me now to talk about the wit, glory, and unusual nature of the Peacock hit Poker Face. Also, if you're a Pesca Plus subscriber, there will be some additional Poker Face content in the feed where I quiz Lilla and Nora to see how good they are at discerning whether I'm lying or not. But for everyone else, enjoy Lilla and Nora Zuckerman, Poker Face. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. 
And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Poker Face is the, oh, it's more than just a wonderful show. It's the phenomenon on Peacock. It stars Natasha Leone as someone with a power, a special power in one episode. She likens it to the cancer-sniffing dog. She just knows when you're lying. From this conceit springs 10 episodes of delight and wonder and quirkiness and merriment. They channel Columbo. And the, eh, just one more thing. The showrunners of this enterprise and the writers of episode nine, Escape from Shit Mountain. For the record, Michelle Pesca's favorite episode, it's top three for me also, are the sister duo of Lilla and Nora Zuckerman. They're here now. Thank you guys for joining me on The Gist. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Was it your favorite episode? You get to say if it was. Of course it was our favorite episode. Episode 109 was really our baby. And uh, I've never had so much fun writing a script and then the cherry on top of the Sunday is that it's directed by Ryan Johnson. And we had a wonderful cast. We had uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and David Castaneda and the Academy Award nominated Stephanie Sue. So it was really an embarrassment of riches for that episode. Well, you always have a wonderful cast. In fact, the day we're speaking to you yesterday, the guest on The Gist was Tim Blake Nelson, who's awesome, and Judith Light's been on the show, and uh, even John Darnielle of The Mountain Goats, who's one of my favorites, winds up as a guitar player in an episode. Was that hard? Was that hard to kind of fly blind and you couldn't have had it cast before it started, just hoping we're going to get all these great actors because I guess Natasha has a Rolodex and Ryan has a Rolodex, but still the appeal of the show has to be such that you get all these great stars signing on. Well, we were really mindful of that when we were writing these episodes too. We knew that if we wanted to attract this world-class talent, we would need to offer up these really juicy, meaty, delicious roles. A lot of uh, our actors get to play against type. You know, it's not every day that Epatha Merkinson gets to play a murderer. She's usually the good guy putting the bad guys away. And so- Yeah, yeah, yeah. She exudes morality and rectitude. But yeah, <laughs> when she gets to be sneaky and murderous, yeah. That's right. So we knew that if we gave um, these actors a fun role to play, that they would really dig in. Um but it's not like we were casting them in our heads when we were writing that. That's a dangerous trap to fall into. Yeah, it also seems to me that a lot of your guest stars are to people who, okay, you don't have to be the deepest of cineasts to know them, but they're great actors, 
maybe more so than their huge names. Like, uh, I love Tim Blake Nelson. Don't know if someone is going out of his or her way to watch, quote unquote, the Tim Blake Nelson episode. Well, he was wonderful to work with. And and somebody that when his name came up, we were like, immediately, I want to put that guy in a racing suit and see him in a car. And he just, <laughs> and and he owned it. And, and in that particular episode, he paid such close attention to the technical aspects of it. Because as an actor, you're, you are being dropped into the world as well. So it's, you have, you know, sometimes literally hours to say, okay, become a late model car racing expert. And, you know, he was climbing in and out of the car like a pro and, and we had consultants there, but, you know, he nailed it and, and he had a blast doing it. To talk about some of the cast that we got, I think it's interesting that we were able to get really talented actors more than just straight up celebrities. And, and I think that's like, part of the tradition of Columbo too, is that they had these great character actors that got to see them um, really ply their craft every week. And so in the tradition of that, we were, we were really lucky and really intentional, intentional about getting terrific character actors and then putting them in these unexpected roles. Right. Columbo, Rockford Files, even, you know, Twilight Zone would have that, though, as a different kind of show. But it strikes me, uh, you know, of the things I wanted to talk about was the episodic nature and the fact that it's not serialized. It strikes me that it might be the case that in the 70s, this was all that was available to actors. And so it was known that you would pick a good show and go on it, but not that big a thing. Now, serialization has become so dominant, especially among streamers. I wonder if there was a question uh, in their minds as to, well, do I even really want to do episodic TV? Though your answer is the quality of it and the fact that they could sign on for, I don't know, three, five, seven day shoot and get to really play great parts with great reversals and surprises and not just serve someone's vision of, well, they need a Chloe Sevigny type, so I will be that type. Uh, That must've been very appealing to them too. I think so, because a lot of these serialized television shows, as an actor, when you're signing on, you're signing a seven-year contract. So you really have to consider um, if you're going to spend close to a decade of your life playing the same role. On the other hand, you know, we could call up Judith Light or Tim Blake Nelson and say, hey, you want to come play for a week up in the Hudson Valley? And you get to play something that's against type. Um, I think about Ellen Barkin, who's in episode uh, Exit Stage Death 106. And she has this line where she says, do you know what it's like for actors of a certain age? You go from mom to senator to dementia patient. And she told me that she really uh, felt that line. She really connected with it. And she's like, that's why I'm having so much fun here. I get to play a wicked murderer. Um, And so I I think that there was a lot of appeal about coming on, playing a role, and then, you know, maybe we bring you back one day playing a different role. But I think that was appealing to our actors. Yeah. So on the episodic nature of Poker Face, was it a hard sell? Because uh, all the reviews, so many of the reviews say, well, this is a break from the current trend in that you could just check in for an episode. And once you know the conceit, it flies. You don't really need to know what happened before or after, though there was a bit of a through line. But it's not actually true. If you look at, and I know I don't have to tell you this, you guys are TV professionals, the most popular shows 
are episodic. They're just not the shows that, let us say, coastal elites or the people who are writing reviews for the LA and the New York Times watch. They're the Chicago Med and the Chicago Fire and all the uh, all the laws and order and all the uh, there's a show called 911 that I just saw in the ratings that I don't even know what it is. But my point is, or my question is, I think there's become a class divide. I think there is, uh, you know, one sort of class of TV reviewer and the person who thinks this is what TV is, thinks of everything as serialized. But the way TV is mostly experienced by most people is not that. Now, I was wondering if you've thought about that or if you have any explanations as to why that is. Well, it's interesting because, you know, as Lil and I have pitched projects in our career, you'll hear that streamers want procedural television or they want episode of the week because, for example, I I remember hearing that Criminal Minds is actually one of the most successful shows on Netflix in terms of eyeballs. And it's right. and it's a mystery of the week, but that's not what they end up usually buying. You know, they may say that that's what they want, but it's often very difficult to sell a show like this. And so that's part of Lil and I have had have been down that road. We've done that before. Um, and the question we almost always get is like what's the serialized story? Um, this was really fun because because you know Ryan, with his bona fides and his 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 rate of success in in movies, was able to sort of really stick to his guns and say, "This is not a serialized show." Really, I think only the first and second episode and episode nine and ten um, are the only ones that really have such connective tissue that you really should watch those in order. And that's the advice I give people. I'm like, as long as you watch the first and second episode and then last two episodes together, really the rest you can sort of mix and match and your enjoyment level does not go down. It's still, you know, a show that you can grasp. And I would say of two and nine, it's like 10% is connective tissue. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I think it, you know, it, it, it heightens your enjoyment, but you're not going to be, lost in the way that if you just dropped into succession, you'd be like, who's fighting? I don't know what this is about. And, and um, I think there's something really refreshing about that. Uh, You know, Lil and I spoke recently at a college campus and um, the kids were very excited about being able to watch one episode of television that has a story and a beginning and middle and end. And for them, it was really kind of revolutionary, you know, which, which, (laughs) It's odd because it's like, that's what television used to always be. And actually, as their experience, the ki- the kids, you know about the kids. The kids love the, the kids love the office, right? The kids love friends, right? So you have, so maybe these streamers are saying, we want a huge hit that we know is established like CSI, but we're not going to put ourselves out there to try to cultivate or grow the CSI. Although not to um, screw up any future deals you may have with Netflix. They <laughs> they have Ryan Johnson. They have a big contract with him. He makes them a lot of money. Natasha Leone with, uh, with her show, I think, did very well with them. I don't know if you pitch that to them first, but I hope that they're saying, damn it, we lost out on Peacock, and maybe it was because we insisted on serialization. It's funny because when you talk about serialization, it always comes back to the question of, So why are they going to tune in next week? What's going to make them hit? Yes, I want to watch the next episode. And I think that that they have defaulted to this idea of cliffhangers, cliffhangers, cliffhangers. And and our answer to that is, well, it's twofold. 
I think that every single week you're going to want to hang out with Natasha. Like she's such a compelling uh, lead character. She's like the centerpiece of this show. And, and she's so delightful and she has this magnetism and you just kind of want to see her driving her car and, and hanging out and meeting people. But the second reason is because we're going to make it really good. We're going to give you a high quality show. And hopefully that is enough to entice you to come back or hit play. Right. And, to me, it's the executive saying something like, we don't have enough faith in artistry. We know as executives, we have this cheat code, right? We have this addictive substance. It's like asking a cigarette executive to put in less nicotine. No, I think it's funny. We've we've said that before because there's a little bit, sometimes you will dangle a little bit of serialization in an episode and the immediate response from the executives is always, give me more give me more. And we have to sort of say, no, like you just get a little sugar, you know, in every episode or, or we had one show that we worked on that we called it red meat. You know, you throw the audience a piece of that red meat, that mythology. Um, and, uh, in this show, we really kind of resisted it, you know? And, and I think it, I think it's it's in some ways, like I said, it's a, it's a little innovative and, and revolutionary, even though it's old fashioned. I will say like one thing I haven't heard online or any discussions or in any reviews is questions like, who are Charlie's parents? Right. Where is she from? What's the backstory? Who is Charlie before her? Who is her Kylo Ren? What's the prequel? <laughs> Things that we never goddamn thought about before they conditioned <laughs> us to think about them. That's right. Nobody cares. You just want to move forward with her. And also, there was a genre of shows called The Man With No Name. And these were shows like Kung Fu or The Fugitive, where not having a name and not knowing the backstory of the character was pretty important and it was never demanded. And have we gotten away from that or does the show address that? That's right. I mean, we talked about shows like that and we talked about a lot of old 70s movies too, where, you know, the protagonists were always men on a mission, but you didn't particularly know or care much about uh, their their lives. And you're just like, they were like sharks that were always moving forward. And we, when we started to talk about Charlie Kale, we just were like, that's just who she's going to be. She's going to be a shark. She's going to be moving forward, you know? She's uh, she's Gene Hackman in Night Moves. You know, it's like you just just needs to know. He just needs to know the answer. And for her, it's like she needs to know the truth or she needs to expose the truth. Speaking of Gene Hackman, at least two references to the conversation. She also is likened to Encyclopedia Brown. She's also likened to Burn Notice. I noticed that the detectives that she was likened to were always men and hanging out there was, well, what about Nancy Drew? It had to be a conscious choice. You didn't go there. I think so. We wanted to take that tradition of the more hard-boiled male detective and 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 have Charlie kind of inhabit that world. Obviously, like Nora and I grew up reading Agatha Christie and, and Nancy Drew, and there's always been a space for women in murder mysteries, unlike a lot of other genres. That's a lovely thing about murder mysteries. But we wanted to to kind of skewer the expectations of what a female detective could be. Um, and so it's interesting that you picked up on that. I, I really appreciate it. Unlike some genres where people just got sick of it, I don't think people got turned off of the really well done murder mystery. We just, maybe they're hard to do. We just got away from them. So if you could do it well, there was every, every chance that they would succeed. But I want to ask you about that. 
are the plots, the intricate plots of these really among the hardest things to pull off? Or is it more that you're so good at it, it only seems that way um, for me, the viewer, on the way in? Once you orchestrate them from the back, they're, I'm not going to say easy, but it doesn't seem as um, daunting as it does when afterwards I really think about what it would have taken to write one of those shows that hangs together. And I, I just don't understand the mind that can pull that off. Well, it is, it is a complicated process and, you know, you do have a, a room of very smart people around you. So that's always a huge help. If you, you know, we're all kind of in awe of what Ryan does with the movies because he literally sits alone in a cabin and figures it all out himself. We have the help of a writer's room. Um, and so if we have a problem, hopefully it gets solved a little more quickly with people throwing out ideas or, or we all go to lunch and we come back and we go, you know, I was thinking about this one thing and uh, you know, it, it, it helps you sort of move forward faster as a group sometimes. But uh, these, these particular scripts for, for poker face are very complicated and for us, you know, we've written procedural television before, but because this is uh, more of a how catch them versus a whodunit, we sort of had to rewire our brains a little bit to break these stories. Um, but they were a lot of fun. It became very freeing once we kind of figured out our process. But usually we tried to start with the murder and then just like layered on detail. And sometimes you would have you know, things that you love that you just had to strip out of it. But if you watch these episodes, there's not a lot of fat on them. You know, everything exists for a reason, even an offhand comment or, you know, I think in episode three of Taffy seeing the train go by, you know, that's there for a reason. And it comes back at the end of the episode. So we had to be very careful about putting these together. Um, and then, you know, in the edit, it, things fall out a little bit as well, but but everything is very intentional. Nora Zuckerman, Lila Zuckerman, showrunners, executive producers of Poker Face, and also check out episode nine, Escape from Shit Mountain. A great episode for a great show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Democrats despair about the unfairness of American democracy. Our democracy, or our lack of democracy. Some points they make are good. The Electoral College right now does disfavor Democrats, but for a while that wasn't the case. And political science say it's a slight skew, but it is the case that Republicans can and have lost the popular vote by a percent or two and still have an advantage in the Electoral College. I think what's really going on there is that there was this guy, Trump. He won the Electoral College, lost the popular vote. It's a pretty compelling data point to criticize the Electoral College. Of the six, here's another one, of the six Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court, you'll often hear, I probably said that, you know, five weren't even appointed by presidents who, when first elected, got the majority of the popular vote. 
you know, just in terms of should the Supreme Court reflect the will of the people. So the stats on this are that Clarence Thomas was appointed by George H.W. Bush, popular vote getter, and Alito and Roberts were appointed by George W. Bush, but they were appointed in his second term, so he had the popular or majority of the vote then. But yeah, Donald Trump, you know, that guy we talked about before, he is credited with three Supreme Court appointees, and that doesn't reflect majority rule. And of course, the Merrick Garland seat was pure McConnell chicanery. So the composition of the court, not a triumph of popular will, but it's maybe a three out of 10 on the will of the people scale. And now we get to the Senate. The Senate wasn't designed to be democratic. It was designed to give residents of different states differing amounts of power. But in despairing democratic circles these days, it has become an article of faith that the composition of the Senate, not the rules like the filibuster, the very composition is something akin to an emergency. It's just not fair. It's just not democratic. After all, look at the power it takes from voters who are Democrats and hands to fewer voters spread out in those square Midwestern states who are not Democrats. Two days ago on the WNYC program, The Brian Lair Show, the host Brian Lair, who by the way is great, I think he hosts the second best call-in show in all of public radio, framed the discussion in a way that will probably seem familiar to you because you've heard it before. So you're frustrated about gridlock and democracy in Congress these days, right? How many days do we talk about on that on this show? The Senate is permanently stuck because of the filibuster in Joe Manchin and the fact that small conservative states get the same two senators as New York and California. Ugh. In fact, the Brookings Institution says California alone, listen to this stat, California alone has the same population as the 21 smallest states combined. But California gets two senators, those smaller states get 42. And that is how you always hear it. The undemocratic nature of the Senate is hampering not just Democrats, but democracy. Two Democratic senators from California and all those Republicans in small states. However, Brian, or the Brookings Institute that he quotes, could have easily said, Texas has the same size population as the smallest 17 states, Texas gets two votes in the Senate, and those smallest 17 get 34. So it sounds like, if you frame it that way, that it's the Republican voters of Texas who are getting underrepresented. And by the way, they are. Brian also said that California and New York, two big states with too few senators. Yeah, Florida's more populous than New York. They only have two senators also. If you were wondering if the opinion was really not so much partisan, he wasn't saying this because Democrats are getting screwed, but democracy was getting screwed, if it was just pure representation. Well, listen to how he phrased it later in the interview in a way that you constantly hear, a way that I think does exist in the imagination of the public that pays attention. I don't see where you've written a similar article on the Senate, maybe just not yet, but why would expanding the House do more to make our democracy more representative than reforming or even abolishing the Senate with that huge overweight it gives to small conservative rural states that we more often talk about? Yes, that is how they often talk about it. It's just not true. States ranked 40 through 50 in population, so let's take every state with under one and a half million people, have 10 Republican senators and 12 Democratic senators, including Bernie Sanders and Angus King, who are independents who caucus with the Democrats. For every Wyoming, there is a Vermont. For every Alaska, there is a Rhode Island. The smallest states include the two Dakotas and the ones I named, but also New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Hawaii, Montana, and Maine. Montana and Maine each have one Republican and one Democrat or one Angus King each. 
I don't think anyone's trying to mislead you in that segment. It's just one of those concerns that has become so embedded, thanks to being so often repeated, but it's not exactly true. Now, there is something to the general complaint of the Senate being really weirdly constructed and really taking the votes away from people in big states like me. I'm one of those voters. It just doesn't break down along Republican and Democratic lines as cleanly as being posited. But it is true. There are 51 Democratic senators. If you include the two Flinty New Englanders and Kirsten Cinema, she's so exciting. Let's still count her as a Democrat. And those 51 didn't get 50 or 51% of the vote if you count all the votes of everyone who voted for the Senate. Closer to 60. However, Ezra Klein and others, when writing about this, point to phenomena that, I guess, is favorable to their point. In 2021, Ezra Klein wrote, To see how bad the map is for Democrats, think back to 2018, when anti-Trump fury drove record turnout and handed the House gavel back to Nancy Pelosi. Senate Democrats saw the same huge surge of voters. Nationally, they won about 18 million more votes than Senate Republicans and still lost two seats. Okay, but in 2022, the Democrats gained a seat, but had fewer votes than Republicans for Senate. It was very, very, very close, by the way, but that is a fact. And it's also a fact that about half of that 18 million surplus can be explained by a quirk in California's primary rules that allow two Democrats to be the top two finalists in the state with the most voters. It's generally true that right now the shape of the Senate is unfavorable to Democrats, such that they have to overperform Republicans by more than just a sliver to win both national elections and control of that body. But it's not nearly as huge an impediment as some of the framings would have you believe. And the solution that the entire segment, that Brian Lehrer segment was about, was about expanding the size of the House. And in my opinion, that's scarily aggressive. It's interesting, but the desired result which was said to be more direct contact with voters and more diversity of voices, I don't know that that's going to yield the desired results. It seems that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are a result of greater diversity of voices within political discourse. Ultimately, I am slightly conservative, not on policy, but on the idea of overhauling a major aspect of the federal system. I not only think there will be unintended consequences to grapple with, I think that the need for a dire remedy is premised on a slight misdiagnosis. If one party wants America to be more small-D Democrat, well then convince Americans to vote big-D Democratic. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST producer, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash TheGIST. Oomperoo, Thanks for listening.